will mark 10 years of marriage for my wife and I. On December 26th of this year, we will, Lord willing, wake up and say to another happy anniversary. We will look back at the last 10 years and reminisce and laugh, maybe even cry a little bit about the joys and trials we've experienced together as a family. Mostly, I hope that we will thank God for his grace and saving us early on in our marriage and sanctifying us throughout. It's only because of him and him alone and his word working in us that we have both been faithful to our vows. The vows that we vowed together on December 26, 2006, were not original. We weren't the type that wanted to make our own. We weren't the traditional ones. The vows went like this. I take you, my lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. Those words are familiar with, uh, to us, aren't they? Even those who choose to recite original vows very much mirror or resemble the traditional ones because we're all making some type of formal promise to our spouse on that day. But have you ever stopped and wondered, maybe at a wedding that you've attended, hopefully not your own, have you ever stopped and wondered, why say those vows in the first place? Why are they necessary? Because you don't find those vows in the Bible. Right? Even if you're from a, say, liturgical or confessional background, there's no catechism, there's no confession of faith, there's no rule book that says you have to utter those words at your wedding day. So what's the deal? Why not stand before an authority and just let him do all the talking and then pronounce you man and wife and be on your way? Well, not only is it traditional, but the reason that became a tradition is because we live in a deceitful age. We live in a world where one's word isn't good enough. Men, by nature, are basically inerrant liars. And that sad truth is plainly evident when you look at the divorce rate in America. About 50% of Americans who end up getting divorced, which reveals that the vows they vowed were merely just a ritual, a formality, a fancy, traditional lie bathed in traditional garb. And so since we live in a world of dishonesty, men began to impose oaths and vows on others in a futile way to force them to be truthful and keep their promises. The Old Testament Jews not only swore according to the law, but also they started the practice of swearing false, evasive vows by everything under, other than the name of the Lord. They swore by anything, pretending to sound truthful, 
but had no intention of keeping their vows. And apparently, this problem became a problem among the diaspora. It was a Jewish rabbinical tradition that carried in the New Testament church, namely James's audience. The making of oaths was a part of Jewish culture, and that baggage was brought into the culture of New Testament Christianity. And so in James 5, verse 12, he has something to say about it. Let's look at James 5, verse 12. James writes, But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. In order to admonish believers with regard to the practice of making vows, James delivered a pure and simple command to stop it. And there are four basic aspects that need to be considered with regard to vows. The first is the importance of vows. The importance regarding vows. The first part of verse 12. It says, but above all. That conjunction translated but indicates a transition in text. As well as a distinction between what has just been stated and what's about to follow after verse 12. So that very small word should, in a sense, refocus. You know, like you have a pair of binoculars, you, you move it away from something, you have to refocus your lenses. So we're refocusing our lenses right now. And we're going to speak about something specific. Now, what's the all? We have to deal with that all, because it comes across as a little bit perplexing, doesn't it? Because he says, above all. That needs to be qualified. Because you might wonder, can James really mean that the practice of making vows is the most important thing he wants to say in this letter? Is the command to stop vowing more important than doing the word? Is it more important than obeying the love command? Is it more important than submitting to God? Is it more important than all the other commands we have been confronted with up to this point in this epistle? Is the issue of making vows the highest supreme command in James' writing? No. It's not. Commentators agree that pro above, ponton all, is what's called an epistolary conclusion. And again, epistle just means letter. This epistolary conclusion is simply an introduction to the conclusion. That's all he means by all. So don't walk away thinking that James has elevated this command above all other commands. Peter uses the exact same phrase in 1 Peter 4, verse 8. He says, above all, pro pontan, keep fervent in your love for one another. Now, was Peter elevating love for one another above having love for God? No. Of course not. That would create a man-centered religion which would be a false religion. The true religion is God-centered. We love God first and foremost, and then our love for God overflows in our love for people. 
can't get it backwards. So, I hope it's clear to you regarding what James is not saying when he, when he says, above all. The wrong taking of oaths does not supersede all other commands in the Bible. Yet, it also does not mean there isn't anything significant about pro-pontos. One commentator noted that James wants to highlight this prohibition. Probably because he sees it as getting at the ultimate issue of personal integrity. And so the phrase above all does indeed set apart the command as pervasive and emphatic. So understand the distinction. Understand the difference between elevating it and emphasizing it. He does want to emphasize this command. Here's why. Because it's easy to gloss over and ignore this command. It was for them, and it is for us, isn't it? I mean, we have no problem rightly talking about and preaching against sexual sins. We rightly emphasize, husbands, love your wives, honor your wives. Right? There's no want for that doctrine in Baptist churches, is there? We, 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 we proudly and dogmatically say it's a sin to be drunk. We say, be a doer of the word. But apparently, the issue of frivolously taking oaths was somewhat of a respectable sin. Have you heard that term before? And I would argue it's the same in our day. I've never heard a sermon talking about making frivolous and flippant promises and condemning that? Christians make promises all the time and fail to keep them, don't they? Have you? Unbelievers, pagans, they break contracts all the time. So the issue is not more important than any other command, but it is nevertheless very important because all believers speak about what's in their heart. So this reference is important. And above all, James wants to understand, wants us to understand that we need to pay attention, refocus highlight this and the reference that he uses as my brethren once again he, he uses that quite frequently it underscores the identity of the diaspora though they had tons of drama pro- problems constant fighting bad theology they were shockingly immature but nevertheless they were still james's spiritual family and just as a concerned genuine relative that you know who loves you deserves your undivided attention when they confront you. So the diaspora had James's undivided attention. That's the first aspect. The second aspect that needs to be considered with regard to vows is the imperative. Look at the second part of verse 12. He says, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. Now, this command, this imperative, is not referring to coarse or vulgar speech like profanity. 
a biblical case can be made against the use of filthy language. But you can't make that case employing James 5.12. This verse is a prohibition against invoking God's name to guarantee the reliability of what a person says. In other words, it is a sin to use God's name in order to reinforce the truth of something he or she has said. Having roots in the Old Testament, the unbelieving Jews of the day had concocted a skewed and complicated system of swearing. In a time where written contracts did not exist, oaths and vows served as a binding agreement. And in doing so, and making those agreements, it would have involved calling on God as a witness and to invoke punishment if the agreement was violated. Now that's a pretty serious matter, wouldn't you say? So James is saying crystal clearly that the method of swearing involving God's name is to be refrained from. To implore God's name in trivial, menial vows is wrong. And now at this juncture, you might ask, does that mean my wedding vows were unbiblical? What about the oath of office I took as a commissioned officer in the Air Force? What about the oath that Jeff took when he was a sworn law enforcement officer? Ooh. What about the oath that our president-elect will take in a few weeks? With a hand on the Bible. Is James forbidding all kinds and forms of oaths? Period? No exceptions? No. He's not. Oaths are by no means consistently forbidden in Scripture. God himself takes oaths to guarantee the fulfillment of what he had promised. Hebrews 3, verse 11, and verse four, chapter 4, verse 3. I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Hebrews 3, verse 18. And to whom did he swear? He, referring to God. Hebrews 6, verses 13 and 14. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Hebrews 7, verses 20 to 22. And inasmuch as it is not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath. And he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. So God takes oaths all the time. The Apostle John recorded that the strong angel in Revelation 10 swore by him who lives forever and ever. And so even though Scripture does not prohibit oaths, it does demand that a person be true to the oath that they had taken. That's the way it's always been. Leviticus 19, verse 12, is significant. It says, Do not swear falsely by my name, and so profane the name, your Lord, the name of the Lord your God. So therein lies the biblical balance. 
We've seen that God has sworn many times, and we've seen how the angel in Revelation 10 swore by God's name. We could also go back and see the oath that David made to Jonathan in 1 Samuel 20 and 2 Samuel 21. We could also see the oath Israel took under Joshua's leadership and during King Asa's reign. We can, we can even look at the vow that Paul made to God in Acts 18. But then we're collided with, we're confronted with Matthew 5. And then we wonder, again, where's the balance? Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 5, verses 33 to 37. Jesus himself said, And again, you have heard the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill the vows to your Lord. But I say to you, you know how Jesus has had the tendency to like ratchet it up a little bit, right? But I say to you, make no oath at all. Make no oath at all. By heaven, for it is the throne of God. Or by earth, for it is the footstool for his feet. That's a good definition for the earth. A footstool for his feet. Or by Jerusalem, for its city of the great king. You shall make, you sh- nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But yet your, let your statement be yes, yes, and your no, no. Anything beyond this is evil. Now, does that sound familiar? Isn't that pretty much what James said? And so where, where do we discern the real biblical balance when we consider James' imperative and then Jesus' stronger imperative to make no oath at all? You see how somebody can become really stupid and balanced here? On the one hand, we say, no, you cannot make an oath. On the one hand, we say, look at all these oaths that happen in Scripture. Well, again, I'm constantly trying to teach you how to be educated exegetes. You have to take the whole of Scripture. We have the presupposition of analogia scriptura, that Scripture interprets Scripture. It never contradicts itself. If you come to a point where you think there might be a contradiction, the problem is with us. Not with the word of God. The lack of ambiguity here is found when we consider the historical context. Remember how the Jews had taken the practice of oaths to a frivolous level and deceptive level. And then the broad context of where God himself makes oaths and men of God make oaths. And they're not condemned for it. Oaths are wrong when they're misused with the intent to deceive others or when taken rashly or flippantly. I think that's the part that we, as American Christians, need to be careful with the most. I give my brothers and sisters the benefit of the doubt that when they make an oath or a vow, they don't intend to deceive. But I think... It's possible some of us can make an oath or a vow rashly or flippantly. God expects our vows to be made under the right set of circumstances. 
And furthermore, it demands that vows be kept and not taken lightly. So you can have a clean conscience. That you did not sin when you took wedding vows. That is, unless you secretly were planning to break them. You can give a, a, a two thumbs up to servicemen and law enforcement officers and to politicians who swear an oath to protect the country. It is reasonable uh, to make an oath in the court of law, again, because the common tendency for unregenerate men to outright lie or bend the truth is expected. Ask a law enforcement officer. Every time they approach a situation, they're assuming they're lying. That's all they get. They get lied to every day. Because, again, men by nature are liars. So as long as oaths are rare, serious, appropriate, sober, and honest, they are permitted. They are strictly forbidden, nevertheless, by God, if taken in any other fashion. The third basic aspect that needs to be considered with regard to vows is the implication. Okay, so what is the implication after learning of the imperative? If we are admonished not to make vows, then how to communicate? How are we to give people confidence that we're telling the truth? Well, just in case it's not obvious, James' instruction adds clarity to this imperative. He says, your yes be yes, your no be no. He's simply reiterating what Jesus has already taught. You know, there's a lot of truth in the saying that repetition is the mother of learning. Repeat, repeat, repeat. You be taught the fundamentals over, over, and over again. Paul Washer says that we need preachers who get up and preach the gospel over and over and over and over again. Because we forget it. And there are constantly unbelievers coming in. So, repetition is important. Repetition here is important as well. So, this portion of scripture, actually, even though it's good to be reminded of it, needs very little explanation. Right? The idea here is for Christians to employ basic, direct, straightforward, honest speech. Boy, I love that. That's easy for me, right? Employ basic, direct, straightforward, honest speech. Can you do this, brother? Yes or no? Jesus and Matthew saying the same thing as James. Our truthfulness should be so consistent, clear, and dependable that we need no oath to support it. A simple yes or no should suffice in our daily interactions with people. Our mere word should be as utterly trustworthy as a signed document or a legally correct contract. You hear about the good old days, right? The good old days when a, when a man's handshake meant something, right? 
But now it seems like everything needs a contract. Everything needs something extra. A yes or a no does not do anymore. But as Christians, we're to be people of integrity with no need to concoct a wordy, verbose, elaborate oath to convince others of our truthfulness. As believers, we should be known as people who, as Paul said in Ephesians 4.25, speak truth to one another. Speak truth. The fourth basic aspect that needs to be considered with regard to vows is the impact regarding vows. What is the impact if we do tell frivolous, deceptive vows? Very plainly. He says, so that you may not fall under judgment. Judgment is a minor reoccurring theme in this letter. He makes it an emphasis. As you may recall in James 2, Verse 13, we read, For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And in James 3, verse 1, he wrote that teachers of the law, teachers of the God's word, should be few in number because judgment is harsher for them. Judgment comes from the Greek word crisis. You've heard me in a prior exposition explain that term in detail. Crisis is from, we get the English word, crisis very simple and when using the new testament it it never refers listen it never refers to god chastising believers crisis in the new testament refers to passing the sentence of eternal damnation upon unbelievers jesus revealed that He had a dual purpose in coming, did he not? He said he came to seek and to save that which was lost. Amen. For that was all of us. But in John 9, verse 39, he said, For crisis, I came into the world. For judgment, I came into the world. The apostles used it. To speak of final sentencing to hell. John, the apostle of love, in Revelation 20, reveals a final judgment, a final crisis for all unbelievers of all ages. He says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence heaven and earth fled, and no place was found for them. And I saw a dead the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were crisis. Judged for the things which they were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And they were crisis. Judged. Every one of them according to their deeds. Paul used the term crisis to speak of God's judgment on sinners as well. Once in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 5, he makes mention of God's righteous judgment. And then in his letter to Timothy, 
He wrote, the sins of some are quite evident going before them in judgment. So given the clear lexical or dictionary meaning and contextual meaning of crisis, did James intend to say that eternal punishment awaits for the one who continually invokes God's name in a vow? Yes. Because not only is the practice of vowing in God's name unnecessary, it's a blasphemous use of his name. And the one who is totally fine and intentional about habitually utilizing the name of God for self-serving purposes as a filler word, thereby taking God's name in vain, displays an unregenerate heart. The law warned in Exodus 20, verse 7, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes the name in vain. And the truth is, one way of taking God's name in vain is to swear falsely. So be careful how you use God's name. His name is not a filler word. His name is not a curse word. His name is not to be used so that sinful, untrustworthy men can sound trustworthy. We hear tons of people doing this, don't we? Even little children. My little children come home all the time. It's about kids at school who use God's name in almost every way but the right way. And you know what, brothers and sisters, we cannot become numb to it. Because if you come become numb to it, you'll start doing it. And if you begin to make a habit of blasphemy, it will reveal something about the condition of your soul. James said it. He clearly says, do not swear invoking God's name or you will fall under condemnation. Very convicting, isn't it? So we've seen the four aspects with regard to practicing vows, the importance, the imperative, the implication, and the impact. Now for the few minutes I have left, I want to give you a few takeaways regarding this imperative. Just to break it down, to nitty-gritty here. First, understand the overarching principle is this. Do not be lighthearted about swearing to the Lord. Because you are unable to know for sure whether or not you can keep your vows. The fact that we are prone to errors in judgment, which are part of our fallen nature, means that we can make foolish, immature promises. Leave God out of it. Further, don't make vows because... We don't know what the future will bring. Don't say, I vow to do this. I'll, I'll take an oath to do this. Or even be very careful with, I promise to do this. 
Because you don't know what will happen tomorrow. I've told my children, I promise, we'll go to the park tomorrow. And guess what? Something happens. And I have to tell my children, I'm sorry, we can't go to the park today. You think they care what came up? All, all, all they know is that their dad lied to them and I broke a promise. That has an impact on people. And it compromises our integrity. God is the one who is in control of things. So be careful when you make vows, oaths, and even promises. Finally, Understand this, that Jesus commands that our word be sufficient. We shouldn't need to promise. We shouldn't need to make a vow. We shouldn't need to take an oath. When we say yes or no, that's exactly what we should mean. As Christians, we are truth tellers, and we of all people should not require a vow to bolster our word. Adding vows or oaths to our words opens, opens us up to the influence of Satan, whose desire is to trap us and ultimately cause us to compromise our Christian testimony. And so that is precisely why we need to have the mindset of, of, of James 4.15. If the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Yes, brother, sister, I will do this, Lord willing. When you're asked to do something or give an answer, people around you should know that they can take you at your word. That is part of loving your neighbor. And your neighbor is your wife, your children, first and foremost, your husband, the family of God. And everyone else. So, may we purpose to be truth speakers and to not take lightly the vows and oaths and promises we make. And may we be men and women of our word. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you. It's clear. Thank you that we can find forgiveness at the cross if any of us are in need of forgiveness may we cry out to you as I've confessed in front of these people I've broken promises before and and I need your forgiveness I need your grace and mercy and I know there's times when some people here if not all have broken promises may we repent be reconciled to you and to those we've offended. Thank you for your word, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.